Thank you, Doug, for that new song. You know, Scripture tells us to sing a new song unto the Lord. And I think maybe one of the advantages of a new song, maybe you experienced it just then, is you tend to pay attention to the words. All right? Not a bad thing. Turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. I was walking through BWI Terminal this week and was marveling that I was hearing um, some Christmas music being played on the sound system. And I recognized it and said, hey, wait a minute. That's a holy night. This is fantastic. Now, they didn't play the words, but I was singing them in my heart. And I got to thinking, well, this isn't even Thanksgiving yet. I wonder if there's any Thanksgiving music they can be broadcasting here. Um, It's probably not as much. I mean, we've been singing a lot of thanks to the Lord. Um, But there isn't as many songs out there in our society that remind us of this, this privilege we have to always be giving the Lord thanks. I'll be starting in Luke 17, verse 11. Follow along as I read. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that they had been healed, he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at his feet, Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is a short passage from the life of Christ, but I see it in six parts, six elements to this episode, the first being the context in verses 11 through 12. I find it interesting that this event is recorded only in the Gospel of Luke. Perhaps that suggests that the healing was especially noteworthy to to Luke, a physician. 
But as best as we can tell, it took place around a week before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. A few weeks earlier, he had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, which is on the eastern outskirts of Jerusalem. But after that, the Jewish leaders sought in earnest to kill him. You remember? And knowing that he needed to be crucified on the Passover and not earlier, Jesus returned north for a few days. And because of the death threats right after the raising of Lazarus, according to John eleven fifty four, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. This town was in Samaria, which would have been an ideal place for him to avoid confrontation with the Jewish leaders because they were not likely to enter into Samaria. Remember that the Jews looked down on their Samaritan cousins, viewing them as half-breeds who had corrupted Jewish law and worship. Well, verse 11 says that this this healing happened while he was on the way to Jerusalem. So he was about to do an about face and return to Jerusalem. It's quite likely that he and his disciples had by this time joined in with others who were making that annual trip to Jerusalem from Galilee, but they would normally go around Samaria. And so it's quite likely he joined a caravan like this. Um, And at this point, however, Luke records that they were between Samaria and Galilee, which of course was north of Samaria. Verse 12 says it happened as he entered a village. Now, this could have been a place like Dothan, which was settled on a strategic north-south transportation route um, through a pass on through Mount Carmel, which separated Samaria and Galilee. But in any case, he was greeted by 10 leprous men at the entrance. We see many references to leprosy and lepers in Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Leprosy is a disease of the skin that progresses to other organs. By the way, did you know that the largest organ in your body is your skin? It's amazing. Uh, Leprosy is, is a disease that can also, though, attack the nervous system, such that the person loses the sensation of pain, particularly in the extremities or pretty much anywhere, and even simple wounds can go unnoticed and then get infected and, of course, cause great damage. Leprosy, as we know it today, apparently, is not highly contagious, but God laid down very strict laws about it in Leviticus 13 and 14. And if you're able to turn to Leviticus 13, I'd like to uh, read some of that. Uh, Leprosy was one of the reasons why a person could be declared unclean, for example. 
and that would disqualify him from participation in the religious life of Israel. And starting in Leviticus, of course, is uh, the third book of the Bible after Genesis and Exodus. Chapter 13, verse 2, when a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest. The priest shall look at the mark of the, on the, the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the infection has turned white and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it is an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body and does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and the hair on it has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate him who has the infection for seven days. Then the priest shall look at him on the seventh day, and if in his eyes the infection has not changed and the infection has not spread on the skin, Then the priest shall isolate him for seven more days. The priest shall look at him again on the seventh day, and if the infection has faded and the mark has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab spreads farther on the skin, after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again to the priest. The priest shall look, and if the scab has spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is leprosy. Well, because these ten lepers were unclean, verse 12 says that they stood at a distance when Jesus came. They presumably stood at a distance from not just Jesus, but everyone near the entrance to the city. And that brings us to the second segment in this passage, which is Jesus' capability in verse 13. It says that they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When the lepers saw Jesus coming, they realized that this was their golden opportunity. So they shouted to Jesus, pleading for mercy. And what does that tell us about them? Well, first, I think it it communicates that they were desperate. I mean, wouldn't you be too? They had no hope for a cure. We couldn't send them to Hopkins, right? They wanted healing more than anything else. They were desperate. Secondly, they either recognized Jesus by sight or perhaps they had been told who he was because they called him by name. But they not only called him by name, they called him master. But what did they mean by that? The word that Luke uses here is the Greek word epistates which means someone who has been set in charge of someone else as in a teacher or commander, like a schoolmaster, right? 
This word is used six other times in the New Testament, but all of them are in the Gospel of Luke, as it is here. And they're always addressing Jesus. And in each case, in the New America, God actually revealed it, right? Um, in each case, in the NASB, um, it's translated master. But of course, other words are sometimes used to um, refer to that role, that, that, that role as master and lord and so on. And so in three of the cases where this word is used in Luke, there's a parallel sentence in another of the Gospels that uses a different word. In Mark, for example, it uses the words for teacher and rabbi. And Matthew always uses, in those cases, the usual word for Lord, which is kurios. But since Luke also uses the words teacher and Lord, referring to Jesus in other contexts, it's not likely, at least in my thinking, that uh, he meant Lord here in the sense that he uses it elsewhere in the gospel. But it's hard to know exactly what these 10 lepers were thinking in their heads. It would have been um, natural for them to refer to Jesus as a teacher, as to someone with authority, and clearly they're appealing to him as a physician, as a healer. But they may not have been thinking of him as Lord and Master of the Universe. Um, but fourthly, they asked Jesus to have mercy on them. That suggests that they were well aware of his reputation as a healer, and they believed that he had the capability to heal them. All that was needed in their view was him to have mercy on them and do it. Right? Fifthly, did you notice they didn't actually have to explain what they wanted. They just said, have mercy on us. It must have been very obvious to Jesus and his disciples and certainly everyone there from their appearance, their being separated from everyone else, that what they were really wanting was the healing from their leprosy. And they pleaded for him to do that. That brings us to the third component of this episode, which is Jesus' command in verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Jesus clearly did have mercy on them, and he did heal them. But as God often does, he challenged them to demonstrate their faith and obedience first. He didn't say, do you have the faith to be healed, right? He didn't teach them about um, who he was. Uh, all he said was, go and show yourselves to the priests. That brings to mind the account in 2 Kings 5 when you remember Naaman, the Syrian general who sought out the prophet Elisha so that Elisha could cure him of his leprosy. And Elisha told him to go dip himself seven times in the Jordan River. 
Uh, I don't think it records anywhere that there was a specific promise there that that would then heal him, but he said, go wash yourself seven times in the River Jordan. Naaman was reluctant at first to do that. It didn't really make any sense, but eventually he obeyed and he was healed. And in this case, when Jesus saw the 10 lepers and heard their plea, he didn't ask what they wanted or even uh, screen them. Were they prepared? Were they eligible for a miracle? He just said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And they certainly understood that Jesus was referring to the requirement under the law, which we read from Leviticus 13, that lepers can be inspected by a priest, they they need to be inspected by the priest before they can be declared unclean. I'm sorry, be declared clean. But notice that he didn't heal them before telling them to go. I would have thought, okay, he heals them and he says, well, remember, the law says go tell the priest. He didn't do that. He just said, go tell the priest. And can you imagine what that would be like? Here I am with leprosy. I want a healing. And he tells me to go, tell, go, go show myself to the priest. Well, I've already done that. I've already been pronounced unclean. I don't see any difference here. Why? You know, I'm thinking in my head, why should I go to the priest now? I, I, don't I need to be healed first? But fortunately, Luke records here that they did go. And it was only as they were going that they were healed. So imagine if that were you. What would you take away from that? You realize that not only did Jesus heal you, but that he did so without a word and without a touch, you were healed. And hopefully you would realize that Jesus wanted you to demonstrate your faith and obedience And if so, that would have strengthened your faith, right? So if that happened to you, what would you have done at that moment? Well, that brings us to the fourth element of our account, and that's the celebration in verses 15 and 16. Surely all of us would be overjoyed, right? Jumping up and down, hugging our companions, um, and it would have been a great celebration. And all, prop, all 10 of them probably did that, or something like that. But verses 15 and 16 record that one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Now, Notice that this man did four important things. First, he went back to Jesus. He didn't just wave to him as he was leaving, right? Or or give him a, a thumbs up. He was as compelled to go back to Jesus personally now as he was compelled to ask for mercy beforehand. Very commendable. Secondly, it says he glorified God with a loud voice. Actually, it says he was continually glorifying God. The verb is in the form of a present active participle, not just one momentary response. 
He couldn't stop giving honor and praise to God, who was obviously the one who had healed him. And as he was yelling his praises at the top of his lungs, he was surely becoming quite a testimony to those who witnessed this miracle. Thirdly, we see that he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. His praise naturally resulted in worshiping Jesus, submitting to Jesus, humbling himself before him. We don't know yet that this man fully understood at this point that Jesus was God in the flesh. But he certainly understood what Nicodemus understood some few years earlier when he said to Jesus, we know that you have come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this man worshiped God at the feet of Jesus. And then fourthly, he thanked Jesus for healing him. Again, this is a present active participle, meaning that for some unspecified amount of time, he didn't stop thanking Jesus. Wouldn't you? Jesus had shown him the mercy he pleaded for and changed his life immeasurably and instantaneously healing him of an incurable disease that had caused him to be an outcast. Not only was he now free of the symptoms of the disease itself, but he was now able to resume normal relationships in society. But again, it's, it's at this point in the narrative that Luke informs us that this man was a Samaritan. So normal relationships would have meant that he would still be treated as inferior to the Jews. But that didn't stop him from worshiping and thanking the Jewish Messiah. But that brings us to really the crescendo here in verses 17 and 18 where we see of Jesus' concern. Here we read uh, the lesson that Jesus had for the crowd and for us. Where he said, he answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Now it was apparent to everyone around there that the other nine had not responded to this man. Now, and in fairness to them, remember that Jesus commanded them to go and show themselves to the priest, and maybe that's where they were going. But the fact that they didn't refer, return first to Jesus like this man was a huge concern for Jesus. Now, if you're like me, you've probably read this episode a hundred times and figured that Jesus was looking for the common courtesy of being thanked. But notice what Jesus says. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this stranger, this foreigner. The text makes it clear that this Samaritan certainly thanked Jesus, but it's especially noteworthy to Jesus that this man gave glory to God continually and loudly. 
Now, what's the difference between thanking God for something and giving God glory? Well, if you haven't been tracking with me so far, do so now. This is the lesson that God had for us. The difference between thanking God for something and giving God the glory is that even though it's, it's good to thank God, in fact, we're commanded to be thankful to God, nonetheless, our focus in thanksgiving generally is on who? Us. We thank God for what he's done for us, typically. But when we give God glory, our focus is on who? On him, not us. That's the nature of worship. He is the giver of all good gifts. Even more importantly, everything that God has created, he created for his glory. You remember in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The heavens are telling the glory of God, but unfortunately, most people don't glorify God, even though that's why he created them. And in spite of the obvious. In Romans 1, 18 through 21, we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world and his invisible attributes, uh, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, what? They did not honor him as God. Now, honor here is the same word for glorify, by the way. They did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. I think most of us can remember the days when that was characteristic of us as well, right? Now, we know that everything we do is supposed to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Right? And when we do that, it will, by God's grace, lead others to glorify him as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Likewise, 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that is, unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. What's the lesson here? Life 
is not about us. It's all about God and his purposes. As his creatures, which he created, and particularly those of us whom he has saved, it's our duty to glorify God in everything. He owns everything we have, so we are to be his faithful stewards, slaves, managing everything we have to advance his interests, bringing him glory. Indeed, he owns us as well. So we need to be good stewards with our bodies, our time, our talents, even our thoughts. Imagine that. Life is not about us. We're so used to approaching life selfishly. What's in it for me? In fact, we often approach worship the same way. What's in it for me? But what really matters is what God is doing for his purposes and our need to fit in with that. That's why Jesus was concerned that the nine others weren't in a worship mindset, even at that point in their life. Indeed, we know that we need to glorify God even when his purpose includes suffering and even death. I referred earlier to the raising of Lazarus, but uh, before that happened in John eleven four. Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, and when people were pointing this out to him, Jesus said, this sickness is not to end in death, ultimately, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Most of us are quick to glorify God after we see the good he has accomplished, right? But how often do we glorify him in the midst of a trial or persecution, not having any clue as to what God is up to, not knowing when or even if God will resolve the issue to our satisfaction? Just like the Samaritan whom Jesus healed, God calls us to walk by faith, placing our trust in Jesus Christ in and through even our trials. I think we all remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, where it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But we might forget in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So it's not enough, not enough just to give God thanks in the trials, we also, by faith, need to thank him for the trials, knowing that he uses them for good purposes. 
and he accomplishes those good purposes in us and sometimes in spite of us, through us. That's glorifying God in a very practical way. That brings us to the last part of this episode in verse 19, where we read of Jesus' commendation. Not condemnation, commendation, right? Jesus told the man who was healed and returned in, in worship to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Notice that the man was still prostrate on the ground at this point. Um, and Jesus told him to rise and go on his way. Then Jesus said, literally, your faith has saved you. Jesus was commending this man's genuine faith in Christ for salvation. He was worshiping Christ. He wasn't just being thankful for the physical healing. He was glorifying God genuinely. And he was to continue in that faith as he began his new life. That was the charge. Well, how about you? Are you looking forward to thanking God this Thanksgiving for all he's done for you? Hopefully you are. Perhaps you're anticipating thanking him by overeating? Maybe watching football? Getting incredible deals in the stores, whatever it might be. Um, and it's definitely good to acknowledge God's goodness toward us. We're commanded to do so, to be thankful from the heart. But it's also critical to worship him, to glorify him. The ultimate focus should not be on what he's done for us, although we need to be thankful for that, but rather the ultimate focus should be on him, the giver of all good gifts, and how we can glorify him by thoughts, words, deeds, What God has done for us should give us deeper insight into his character, which should then prompt us to worship him just like this healed leper. But God even calls us to thank him and worship him in the midst of trials before he has answered our prayer or rescued us from those trials. Are you holding off on glorifying him until he does what you want him to do, you're missing out on an opportunity for rich worship. You remember Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob? Joseph was mistreated by his brothers sold, who sold him into slavery, but he excelled as a slave, so his owner put him in charge of the whole household. Then his master's wife, wrongly accused Joseph of immorality and he went to prison for it. But he excelled as a prisoner. And so the warden put him in charge of the whole prison. Throughout all of this, Joseph could have easily borne a grudge and questioned whether God even cared. But eventually he realized that God had actually been preparing him to become the supreme ruler of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, so that he could prepare all Egypt 
for a seven-year famine, and in doing so, be a blessing to many non-Egyptians, including his own father and brothers. Although Joseph didn't know during the trials how it would turn out, he chose to be content to glorify God through the trials. Well, as it turns out, there's someone associated with our American Thanksgiving holiday who reminds me a lot of Joseph. You remember that we commemorate the first Thanksgiving observed by the pilgrims in 1621, a year after they settled in Plymouth, Massachusetts. The pilgrims had fled England and Holland to be free to worship God, and they journeyed to the New World at great cost and enormous physical risk. In fact, 47, almost half of them, died during that first winter in America. It would have been easy for them to question God's care for them, but from the time they arrived, they became aware of God's sovereign providence. For example, the place where they landed was a uh, previously occupied but now vacated native settlement. They eventually learned that the evil Patuxent tribe not the Patuxent, like our name around here, Patuxent tribe, uh, who had lived there, had been completely killed off by a disease so that none of the other tribes nearby were interested in that site. But there was one surviving Patuxent named Squanto who not only spoke good English but introduced himself as a Christian. Several years earlier, by God's providence, Squanto, somewhat like Joseph, had been taken into slavery by some Europeans and ended up in Spain where he became a Christian. And then in England where he learned English. Upon his return home six months before the Puritans landed, he found his whole tribe gone, forcing him to reside with the neighboring Wampanoag tribe. He must have been puzzled, right? By all that had happened to him and what happened while he was away, and he must have wondered, what was God doing? What would he have him to do? Then, when he met the pilgrims who didn't know how to survive in Massachusetts, he realized that God had prepared him to teach them, which is what he did. So with Squanto's help, the pilgrims learned how to grow crops suited to that climate, how to catch the local fish. Uh, how to advance themselves in the local economy with trade with the Indians and so on. It required a lot of work and perseverance on their part, but God blessed their efforts, which were based on their desire to please and serve him. So before their second winter, they gathered a substantial harvest and knew that God had blessed them abundantly. Their natural response was to thank him for his bountiful mercy and provision So they held a great feast of thanksgiving to God, to which they invited Squanto and the Wampanoag tribe. Their practice of thanking God for his blessings became the example for later national commemorations and even the current national holiday of thanksgiving. The pilgrims were a great example 
of worshipful thanksgiving. Especially when they had to walk by faith through adversity. And they had every earthly reason to grumble. But thanking God in worship when he delivered them from their distress. I pray that that we, by God's grace, would be like this Samaritan leper who didn't just thank Jesus for healing him, but who ceaselessly glorified God with a loud voice. May we also give God the praise and worship he deserves at all times, not just when he does something good for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have shown us a much greater mercy than what these lepers experienced, yet we still grumble and question your goodness. Please forgive our self-centeredness and lack of faith. Teach us to glorify you in all things, even in the midst of trials. You must increase and we must decrease. Amen.